there was an American preacher who traveled to do some preaching in South Africa. And while they were driving to one of the villages in the Serengeti, you may be aware that vehicles in South Africa are not always as reliable as ours might be here. And while they were crossing the Serengeti to get to a village where they were planning on preaching to some of the villagers, the, the vehicle broke down. And so the, the traveling preacher and the local guy who was from South Africa talked about it for a moment. And they decided that, you know, we're really only a mile, an hour hike from the village. And considering South Africa time and village time, they probably wouldn't be getting there till an hour late anyway. And so we can walk and we'll still be able to teach the folks there. And so let's just get our Bibles and let's just head on that way. And so the American preacher started walking down the road and he looked back and he saw that the local guy had actually gone to the back of the car, pulled out his duffel bag, and was putting on some tennis shoes. The American looked at him kind of quizzically and was wondering about it because the guy had been wearing hiking boots, and, I mean, they're about to hike. And so he asked him, he said, Brother, what are the tennis shoes for? And the South African preacher said, Oh, brother, this is in case the lions attack. <laughs> he says, Lions, are you serious? Absolutely. He said, now, come on, brother. If a lion really does attack, you're not going to be able to outrun it. The South African preacher looked down at the American's casual dress shoes and says, I don't have to outrun it. I just have to outrun you. And isn't that the way it is with lions? Have you ever seen those nature shows? The lion's going to attack the gazelle or the antelope. Which one do they pick out? Do they pick out the largest buffalo in the herd? The fastest gazelle? The strongest antelope? Of course not. They go for the one that's weak and vulnerable. The one that's slower. Maybe even injured. We need to remember what 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 says. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I hope somebody complains to me about these pictures. Oh, you shouldn't have shown those. Those are too awful. They're too visceral. They're too, too scary. I want you to be scared. Because this right here is what Satan wants to do to us. And it is frightening. And the ones that he's going to go for are the vulnerable ones. That's where he's going to start. Listen, he's got all of us in his sights. But he's looking for our vulnerability. So that he can hunt us, stalk us, and eat us. And the problem is, all of us are susceptible. The reality is, in this fight, it's not just an issue of maybe if I'm better than you, I'll get away. It doesn't work like that. Every single one of us is too weak to face this fight. Every single one of us is vulnerable to Satan's attack. 
And that's why what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 is so amazingly important. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul said, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. How are we going to stand firm? How are we going to face this attack? It's not going to be by our own strength. It's not going to be by our own might. We can't do it. If that's what we rely on, we're going to be like these pictures. But if we're strong in God's mind, if we are connected to God and God is working through us, then we'll overcome. Then we'll stand firm. And Paul tells us about the armor of God, but the thing I want us to notice is how he finishes up. In fact, a lot of folks believe that this verse is after the armor, but I believe it's just as much a part of the armor. In fact, I kind of like to think of it really, maybe if it's not a part of the armor, it's our battle cry. We've suited up in the armor, and now we're heading out into the fight, and this is our battle cry in verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Our battle cry is not about our strength. Our battle cry is not about what we can do. Our battle cry is not about where we're going to go or how awesome we are. Our battle cry is our call out to God to be with us, to strengthen us, to be with us in the battle that we might overcome. If we want to face the fight, if we want to overcome, if we want to come out on the other side of the fight, prayer has to be part of our lives. Prayer is the means by which we connect to the one who can win the battle. And so because of that, we've been studying the Psalms. Because when most of us think about what is great prayer, our mind naturally goes back to that Old Testament prayer and hymn book. And we look at the kinds of prayers that they offered and we look at the attitudes that they have and we long to be able to pray like that. And as we've studied this, we've noticed what the psalmist thought about God. We've noticed what the psalmist thought about themselves. We've even looked at what the psalmist thought about prayer. But the thing that we now need to understand is that the psalmist did not view prayer in a vacuum. The psalmist did not just have the idea that anybody, anywhere, can just pray anytime. Rather, the psalmist understood that if we're going to pray, we've got to prepare to pray. Now, when we talk about preparing to pray, I'm not talking about the way you dress. I'm not talking about the way you sit or the way you stand. I'm not talking about any of those kinds of preparations. I want us to see what the psalmist says about preparing to pray. Who is it that can pray? What do we need to do? Where do we need to be so that everything else about prayer actually happens? 
I'm going to share with you five things that I found in the Psalms about preparing to pray. Before we do that, would you pray with me, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we love you so much, and we praise you and offer you great thanks, especially for our new brother Michael. We're thankful for your son who died so that Michael's sins and the rest of our sins could be forgiven. We're thankful for your spirit who has revealed your word. We're thankful that you will work in us to help us overcome our struggles and our sins. Father, we pray that you deliver us from our body of death. Strengthen us with your might that we can fight the battle, not by our strength and power, but by your spirit. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for loving us. We pray that you would hold us in Christ, that we might glorify and honor you, because you are, in fact, the great God who is worthy of all honor. We love you so much and we thank you for loving us. Through your Son we pray. Amen. Well, the psalmist, they think about preparing for prayer. The very first thing that we see from the psalmist is that we've got to be studying God's Word. In fact, just open up to the very first page of the Psalms. The very first Psalm, Psalm 1. Notice how it begins. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the feet of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I don't know if you notice this, but that's not a prayer. This book of hymns and prayers begins with the exhortation, get in God's Word. Before anybody has, has come to even the first prayer in the Psalms, the very first thing that God said they need to be doing is meditating upon His law day and night. If we want to pray like the psalmist, we've got to start where the psalmist started. And they started with being in God's Word. Psalm 40, verse 8. Psalm 40 and verse 8. The psalmist says, I delight to do Your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Psalm 19 that we read just moments ago. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11 all deal with God's Word. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Six words that are used here in reference to God's Word. In Psalm 119, which we're not going to read right now, but I encourage you to read it, 176 verses, almost every single one of which refer to God's Word. If we want to be prepared to pray, we've got to be in God's Word. Isaiah drives this home. In Isaiah chapter 66, In verse 3, Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 3, Isaiah said, He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. 
When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. God says, I'm not going to accept any of the worship that they offer. Why? Because when I spoke, they didn't listen. We want God to listen to us. We've got to be listening to Him. The second thing is that the psalmists were not Gnostics. That is, they didn't have this dualistic idea. They didn't say to themselves, well, it doesn't matter what I do, and as long as I know God's will, as long as I'm studying and I'm in there, that's all that matters. The psalmists believed that they had to obey God's will. They had to live God's will if they were going to pray. Psalm 26. Psalm 26. And verse 1. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Why could he pray? Because he had been walking in the Lord's will. Psalm 66 and verse 18. Psalm 66 and verse 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Now, don't misunderstand. The psalmist certainly recognized the place for confession. The psalmist certainly recognized the place for God's child who had sinned, who was coming to God to lay that sin out before God. In Psalm 51, Psalm 51 and verse 1, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The psalmist understood that the, the sinner could come to God, that the sinning child could come to God and lay that out and find forgiveness and mercy in God's presence as he prayed that prayer. The other thing that we need to understand is that the psalmist did not have the idea that I get to pray based upon my own holiness and righteousness. The psalmist did not have the idea that because I am holy and I haven't sinned, I get to pray. Psalm 130 and verse 3. Psalm 130 and verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? There wasn't a psalmist out there that had the idea that they were getting to pray because they had never sinned. And so the psalmist would not be saying, Oh, no, I sinned today, I can't pray. That wasn't their concept. But their concept was that I can't sin with impunity. I can't just go off grasping sin, living the life of the hypocrite, and then come to God in prayer and act like my prayers are going to do any good. If the life that I'm living is one of sin, we're not talking about the one who's struggling, who's growing in Christ, but if the life that I'm living is one of sin, I can't think that just because I prayed, that just fixes everything. I need to be in God's Word. I need to be surrendering myself to God. I need to be submitting to God and doing His will. Now that leads to a third thing that the psalmist recognized. You see, the psalmist recognized, I'm supposed to be living God's Word if I want to pray, but I've got a problem with that. I've already messed that up. I've already gone away from God's law. As Psalm 130 said, if the Lord would mark iniquities, who could stand? We recognize that in order to prepare to pray, you need to have a broken and contrite heart. We're going to talk in a minute about the issue of sacrifice and prayer. But what the psalmist understood was that killing an animal didn't just fix everything. 
Psalm 51 and verse 17. Psalm 51 and verse 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Brothers and sisters, I want you to notice here, this is far more than just a tinge of guilt. This is far more than a just-in-case. This is far more than I'm only human, broken and contrite. Listen to what he said beginning in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with this, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Excuse me. Psalm 32. Another psalm that demonstrates that brokenness. Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up like as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here's a broken and contrite spirit. The thing that we need to understand that broken and contrite spirit is not just one item on the checklist of things to get ready for prayer. Okay, got my, I'm dressed, I'm on my knees, I've got my broken and contrite spirit, okay, now I can pray. That's not what it is at all. The fact is, if we don't have a broken and contrite spirit, we won't pray. We won't pray. Because it is the broken heart that realizes the need for God. I'm not saying we won't ever pray. We won't pray consistently. We won't pray like the psalmist did. Broken and contrite heart is a preparation not because it's a checklist item, but because without it, I'm just not going to. And in fact, Take a look at your prayer life. How much are you praying? I think I can say that your prayer life will grow as your brokenness grows. As your concept of your brokenness grows. As your recognition of your brokenness grows. And if your prayer life is not growing, 
start by taking a look at your heart. And how much you really think you need God. The psalmist recognized that along with a broken and contrite heart, there needed to be surrender. Surrender. Not just faith. Not just trust. Surrender to God. We talked about in a couple, a couple of lessons ago in this series that, that the psalmist looked at God and recognized God as his fortress. Psalm 18. Psalm 18, beginning at verse 1, says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The psalmist viewed God this way. He is the rock. He is the redeemer. He is the fortress. God is the place where protection is, not me. If I'm trying to run around and fight against the lion myself, I am going to be in trouble. What I need to do is give up the fight. I need to surrender and realize that I'm going to lose and retreat into the fortress that is God and surrender my life to Him and let Him be in control. The thing that I want us to note is that this is how the psalmist felt that led him to pray. Psalm 31 and verse 5. This sums it up. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Jesus said that on the cross. I should say Jesus quoted that on the cross. There on the cross, He didn't fight those who were against him. He just gave himself over to God, said, into your hand I commit my spirit. Psalm Psalm 119, excuse me. Psalm 119, verse 2. Psalm 119, verse 2 says, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole And verse 10, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. It's wholehearted submission. It's surrender. It's I'm going to turn my life over to God. I mess my life up. If I'm going to lead my own way, I'm going to get eaten. So I'm just going to turn my life over to God. And again, this is not some kind of checklist item. Okay, I've studied my word, I've lived the word, I've broken contrite heart, and, uh, and, and now I'm surrendering. Once again, this is not a prerequisite in the sense of there's some rule that says prayer only works when you've done this. This is just natural. If I don't see God as my rock, as my redeemer, as my fortress, if I don't see myself 
as the powerless one who can't beat the enemy, if I don't see God as the one who is my strength, who's going to give me the strength to overcome, then I'm not going to pray. If I don't see my need for God, then prayer will always be nothing more than just a little homework exercise that the preacher tries to make us feel guilty about every once in a while. And, and, and we'll have a New Year's resolution that we're going to do better, and a couple weeks later we kind of let it slide. Man, when I see that surrender, when I see that need for God, all those other excuses, every excuse that I've ever had just kind of melts away. When I see my need for God. I know the baptism put us a little bit behind schedule, but I know y'all are rejoicing over that, and so it's not going to bother you if I go ahead and add a little story in here. Why don't you think about all the reasons that we don't pray when we don't? And if I were to pull the whiteboard up here and ask you, okay, guys, give me some reasons, some hindrances to prayer, some folks would say, I don't have enough time. Think somebody would say that, David? Okay. Some folks would say, um, I always intend to, but my life's too hectic. Think somebody might say that, Mark? Somebody might say, I don't know how. Think somebody might say that to you? I don't know what to say. Come up with this list of things that we might come up with as hindrances to prayer. There's really actually only one hindrance to prayer, maybe two, but I can find them together. And that one hindrance to prayer is we don't see the daily need for God. Do we see a daily physical need for God? You know, the Lord's Prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. I got paid this week for a whole month. I'm good for a whole month. James, when you're hungry, what do you do? What if you went to the cabinets and there weren't any food? What would you do? Go to the store, go to McDonald's. Keith, if you're sick, what do you do? I think I called you by your brother's name, didn't I? You know who I'm talking to. And now that I'm in front of everybody, I can't even pull your your name out. So just answer the question. Take medicine. Go to the doctor. Take medicine. That's on tape, y'all. We don't need God. We'll go to McDonald's. We'll go to the doctor. Now, if somebody has cancer, we need God, right? Oh, we can't do We need God then. When it comes to physical things, we don't see the need for God then. We need to see that need. And the sad thing is, is that when it comes to spiritual things, we rarely see the need for God because most of us think we're doing pretty good. I haven't killed anybody this week. I mean, I know I've done a few things, and 
you know, that fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, and patience, that always seems to kind of elude me. But really, I'm doing okay. God, I thank you that I'm not like that guy over there. You heard that prayer before? We saw the daily need for God, and none of those excuses would be there. Let me ask you this. Jimmy, let's just say, and I, I don't know why this would ever happen, and, and God forbid that it should, but if, if you learned today that you had to have $50,000 by Friday or Gail was going to die, where would you be? Would you sit there and say, well, I know the bank has some money, but I don't know who to ask. I don't know what to say. No, of course not. We'd be in the bank saying, I don't know who to ask. I don't know what to say. I don't know if it's you. Find the person I need to talk to. I need it now. We wouldn't allow this idea of I don't know how. I don't know what to say. We wouldn't allow that to get in the way. When we see our need for God like that, PTA and sports and business lunches, sleep, none of those things would get in our way of prayer. We need to see that God is the rock. And we're not. And when we do, prayer will just happen. The final thing that the psalmist saw was the need for sacrifice. Psalm 5 and verse 3. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. There's other passages we could go to. You can get the outline. But the psalmist recognized that sacrifice went along with prayer. Sacrifice paved the way for prayer. It's throughout the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament. The altar went along with prayer. Over and over again. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 8. Genesis 13, 1 through 4. Genesis 13, 18. Genesis 26, 25. Genesis 33. And I think about verse 20. Built an altar to call on the name of the Lord. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 25 and 26, David, because of this census and God was punishing them, he built an altar to call on the Lord. Isaiah 56. And verse 7. Isaiah 56 and verse 7. God's talking about the temple. He said, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Sacrifice. Why, why does the temple have sacrifices? Because it's a house of prayer. See, what the psalmist recognized is that in order to be prepared to pray, I have to live God's Word. I have to obey God's Word, and I've messed that up. And all of my brokenness and all of my humility does not bridge that gap to God. It doesn't make me worthy of prayer. It prepares me to pray, 
But I need something that can carry me into God's presence because God is holy. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He does not hear. When I am in my sins, I can't get to God. Numbers 28 and 29 shows that the Israelites had more than 1,250 sacrifices every year. Those were just the ones that were prescribed. That didn't count all the people who came individually to sacrifice. 1,250 a year. If all they did was those prescribed sacrifices in that history of Judaism until the temple was destroyed, that would be over 2 million sacrifices. But there was a problem. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Why is it that there were two million of them? Because none of them actually worked. And that's why it's so important what we read in John chapter 1 and verse 29. Millions of sacrifices had taken place. Lambs led to the slaughter. And John looks out and he sees Jesus, his cousin. And in John 1.29 he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's our sacrifice. We don't prepare to pray by killing an animal. Because after millions of them, the number one lesson we learn is that just doesn't work. We prepare to pray by getting into Christ and His sacrifice. Jesus is the one who can take us into the presence of God wherever we are. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can come into the presence of God with full assurance because we're in Christ. Here's the thing that we need to understand. Prayer does not save. Prayer is for the saved. We want to be able to pray. We've got to be in Christ. And so, of course, that's our question this morning, isn't it? Are you in Christ?